are so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, welcome back as we down another chapter in our journey through Hebrews. <clears throat> I have literally just about five minutes ago got done with uh, going over Hebrews chapter 5. And those last four verses are still weighing really heavy on my, on my heart as I go through this because I, I see so much in the church today of this contentment with just being on milk. Um, and, and I think so many people in the church don't realize the dangers of what that entails for you because the reality is we are in a war. Um, <coughs> excuse me. It is not a physical war of a war of this kingdom or the war of, war for this world. Uh, we are in a war for souls and for our soul. There's constantly um, that battle going on um, behind the scenes. And so a lot of people don't realize that. And their powers of discerning good from evil, they don't know the word of God. And so oftentimes many people are doing what is evil in the sight of God under this new covenant that we have in Christ. And they don't even realize it. <coughs> and many people, excuse me, even if they do realize it, many people don't care. And that's where the author in chapter 5 verse 11 is getting. He says, I have a lot to tell you, but I can't because you've become lazy or sluggish or dull of hearing. You don't want to hear it. You'd rather somebody... Feed you the fluffy message. You'd rather listen to podcasts of people who are going to build you up and going to tell you all these nice things about yourself. And they're going to encourage you, if you will, if you want to call it encouragement. <coughs> Excuse me, sorry. Um, and you don't want to listen to the hard truths. You don't want to listen to the meat. You don't want to get down into what it really means to, of discerning good from evil because you don't really care to know. And that's a dangerous place. And that's what we're going to get into in this. In, in chapter 6, verse 1, I'm just going to really encourage you guys to... <coughs> excuse me, man, sorry. I'm going to really encourage you guys to listen to the text. Because this might be one of the most fundamental, pivotal, and important chapters that you will ever hear. In the word. It's all important. But in today's day and age, this is one of those chapters that I think cannot go untaught the way that it has in many realms within Christendom today, specifically in America at least. So getting into this chapter six, verse one. Therefore, um, <coughs> man, I'm sorry. Um Go back into chapter 5. If, you, if you're following along with this and you've already listened to chapter 5, then you, you kind of know where we're coming from in this one. If not, go back up to verses 11 through 14 and read it. And notice the severity of the warning that the author has given to these Christians, the beloved, because we cannot lose sight of who he's writing to. 
in the very beginning, he's talking about this even going back into chapter 2. Um, he has called them the beloved. He's called them holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. The context of who he's writing to are Christians. Okay, That is who this point that we're even about to get into chapter 6 is being addressed to, is to Christians. Okay, That's who the author is writing to. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith towards God and of instructions about washings, laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. Um, meaning if we prove ourselves faithful in the little, if we prove ourselves faithful to progress in this and we choose to seek him as he tells us to seek him with all of our heart, then God will absolutely permit. Okay, This isn't something that's like, oh, we could do all the seeking and all the studying and all this and God just doesn't permit us to go any farther. He just wants us to stay as children. That's not the case. That's not what that's stating. It's stating that if you do what you're supposed to and you seek him with all of your heart, <clears throat> then you will find him. As Proverbs 8.17 says, I love those who love me, and those who seek me diligently find me. That's the cry of wisdom. And God gives us a promise that if we are going to actually seek as if it were precious silver, um, as Proverbs 2 talks on, then we will find him. And the fear of God will come into our life, and discretion will guard us and watch over us. <clears throat> and so understand that of what he's talking about at the very end. <clears throat> I'm sorry, in verse 3. But what's he talking about in 1 through 2? Essentially, you can classify it in many different things. Essentially, he says in the very beginning, the elementary doctrine of Christ. He says these basic principles, these elementary doctrine of Christ, these basic things within the faith. He says you need to go on to maturity. The whole concept in 1 through 3 is the author of Hebrews is telling them, you've been teachers or you, you've been in the faith long enough. You should be teachers by now teaching other people what mature faith looks like. But you're still stuck on milk. And you need to mature. You need to grow up. You need to get older in the faith. Because of the danger. The danger that's on the horizon if you don't. <clears throat> and 4 through 6. Listen to what he says. He uses the word for. So he's linking it to what he talked about previously. Saying, grow up. You don't know how to discern good from evil because you're still on milk. What baby knows how to discern good from evil? You know, I've got two babies essentially right now. One's, one's not even one years old and one's two. Um, they're both still babies. And I can tell you, they don't know how to discern good from evil. My five-year-old doesn't know how to do it truly. My seven-year-old doesn't really know how to do it. My ten-year-old is struggling through it. My 13-year-old is getting pretty good at it. My 15-year-old knows what it is, but oftentimes chooses not to walk in it fully. As you get older, physically... You begin to understand because you get life experiences and you get a little bit more knowledge. You begin to understand what is good and what is evil in a physical sense. The same process spiritually. <coughs> Excuse me. The same exact process spiritually. When you're a baby or an infant or even just a child or a toddler in the faith, you don't know the difference between good and evil. Because your powers of discernment have not been trained yet from constant practice. Man, I'm really sorry. So in this understanding, he says, you need to grow up. You need to stop being just an infant in Christ. As 1 Corinthians 3 would classify him. He says, for I'm going to tell you, it is impossible. Now we talk about nothing is impossible with God. Yes, there are things that are impossible with God. 
This is one of them. God is sovereign. He's providential. He can do what he wants. He is free to do that. But here's the one thing that God will bind himself to. And that is his word. If God says something in his word, he will do it. And that goes both ways for the promises of God and the judgments of God. If you choose to um, <clears throat> disengage from the things of Christ, if you choose to um, uh, ignore Christ your whole life and just say, I, I, I don't have time for that. When you die, God will uphold his promise to you of sending you to hell. He's not the one who did it. He created an access for you to come to him because he wanted you, but you refused to accept it. And so you are the one who's actually sending yourself to hell because God didn't want you to go. But if you ignore him and you choose to neglect his son, and the day that you die, you will stand before him and he says, I do not know you. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. He will uphold his judgments just as much as his promises. And the blessings. And he says, it is impossible. <clears throat> now there's a comma there, so he's about to, to talk about and define what he's about to say, carrying on in verse 6. But he's about to define it. He says, it is impossible, comma. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, okay, not who have chosen to ignore enlightenment, but they have been enlightened, <clears throat> who have tasted the heavenly gift, meaning that they have tasted of the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, which is the Greek word metekos. It means that they've become an associate or a partner or they've become one with. Okay? This is identifying the person that he is referencing, the author. Okay? They have tasted the heavenly gift. They have been enlightened. And they have shared or become one with the Holy Spirit. There's only one type of person that becomes one with the Holy Spirit. And that is a Christian. A born again Christian. Who has been born of the Spirit. He says. Have shared in the Holy Spirit. And have tasted the goodness of the word of God. And the powers of the age to come. It says they've tasted the goodness of the word of God. They've shared in the powers of the age to come. They've become one with the Holy Spirit. They've been enlightened. And he says. It is impossible for that person. Who has fallen away, which is, gets into verse 6, and then, so after all these things have happened in their life, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance. Since they're crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. <clears throat> now this is probably one of the most serious passages, and I've heard all kinds of reasonings on this because I'll just... I'll be like really upfront with you um, on this. I don't believe in the concept of once saved, always saved. Okay, I've studied out First John. I know the verses, and I don't have time to get into the apologetics of all that. But I'll just tell you, there is an explanation on the First John chapter two, chapter three verses um, <clears throat> that oftentimes, at least for me in the area that I'm at, I don't oftentimes hear. It's the basic concept of, oh, if you're born of God, you won't keep on making the practice of sin. Let me just tell you, that is a contradiction to what most people even teach today in the, in the common theology and doctrine that they put from the pulpit. <clears throat> I've heard 
the explanations of Hebrews chapter 6, 4 through 6 for many people of saying, oh, well, it was somebody who came to church and they heard everything and, and they were around people who had the Spirit and, and then they just chose to ignore it. I'm like, oh, so you're saying that person could never come back to the, they could never come to the faith? Well, uh, no, I'm not saying that. Well, so what are you saying? You're saying that it's impossible for that person to be restored to repentance because they had ignored the things of God while they came and sat in church. That makes no sense. I've heard all the different you know, ideas behind this. The reality is, is the text says what it says. And he says, I'm warning you. If you want to just stay a babe in Christ, an infant in Christ, and you don't want to exercise your powers of discernment through constant practice, you don't want to grow and study and learn to love like Christ loved and give as Christ gave. <clears throat> you don't want to do those things. You just, you're content to just stay where you're at and live on milk and be unskilled in the word of righteousness. I'm warning you <clears throat> that you run the risk of something called apostasy. Now apostasy defined as a total desertion of the faith. A complete and total abandonment of something that was once allegiant to. The Greek word here for falling away is the word peripipto. It's not the same word that's used. Um, I'm trying to remember what it is. <coughs> Excuse me. Steio, I think, is the Greek word for fallen. It just means to stumble. To fall down, to skin your knee, to hit your face on that concrete, to bloody yourself up a little bit, get a little bruised. That's not what he's talking about. Peripipto is a Greek word that means to deviate from, to wander away from, and to apostatize. It is a complete desertion. And the author here is saying... It is impossible for an apostate to be, uh, what is it, how does he say it, <clears throat> restored again to repentance. Meaning, they had been restored at one time before. They were restored. It's impossible for an apostate to be restored again. And why is that? It's because they would have to crucify Christ once again. That's, that's what he goes on to say. Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. He says, for an apostate to be forgiven and allowed entrance back into the faith, Christ would have to come and die again. But Hebrews 9 makes it clear he isn't doing that. He died once. And once you take claim to that gift that God is offering to you through Jesus Christ, and you choose to then turn from it, you don't get back in. Is it a, a difficult thing for a person to apostatize? Absolutely. I'm not saying it's an easy thing because of the mercy and compassion of God, of how He wants, as <clears throat> 2 Peter 3 says, to the beloved, by the way, 2 Peter 3 is not referencing people who are unbelievers. 2 Peter 3, verse 8, He says this, but do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Beloved, brethren, church, He's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish. No one among you. God does not want you to perish. No one in the church does God wish to say, man, I really wish that guy would just get away from me and perish. He says he's patient towards you, beloved. And he says, 
I don't want any of you to perish. I don't want any of you to be doomed like Cain as a wandering star who has no purpose in this life because he has no governance. He lost his chance. I don't want you to be like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal and afterwards when he sought repentance, he found none even though he started with tears at the end of Hebrews chapter 12. He says, but I want you to reach repentance. But you must understand that day of the Lord will come like a thief. You need to make sure that you're always ready for that. <clears throat> so this, this concept of Hebrews chapter 6 is, is this warning to the infantile Christians who are not progressing in the faith. They're just stagnant. They're lukewarm. And he says, <clears throat> you need to understand, you are running the risk of apostasy. And that is something you cannot come back from. I'm reminded of Jeremiah 44 and 45 when the people of God had rebelled and were disobedient. And God no longer heard their voice anymore. So they go to Jeremiah and they say, hey, hey, Jerry, we need you to go pray for us because God doesn't listen to us anymore. We're kind of, you know, things aren't really good between us right now. And Jeremiah says, okay, I'll go pray. And he goes and he goes off for 10 days and he comes back and... He says, okay, guys, I've got good news, bad news. And I'm totally paraphrasing all this. You go read it for yourself. 40, chapters 43, 44, and 45. He says, <clears throat> good news, bad news, guys. I said, okay, give us the good news. And he says, God will forgive you. God will bring you back into his graces. He'll, he'll bring you back in. Um, and he'll love on you as his children. And he'll forgive your disobedience and, and your rebellion that you did to him. He, he's going to look the other way on that one. He's, he's going to bring you back. And I said, well, what's the bad news? He goes, you can't ever go back to Egypt. And they say, you're a liar. We don't believe you. Because when we were in Egypt, when we served the Queen of Heaven, we actually had prosperity. Things were better than what they are right now. So I'll tell you what, Jeremiah, we'll go back to Egypt and we'll take a chances with her because we don't, we don't want to be under God's governance We wanted a conditional forgiveness and servitude unto him. And Jeremiah says this, okay. Since you are making this choice, anyone who goes back to Egypt, the name of the Lord will no longer be invoked by the mouth of any of you. That's a serious thing. He says you won't be able to call upon his name ever again. said, if you, if you do this, if you set your hand to this and you confess this with your mouth and you go ahead and you do this and you turn away from him, you will not be able to call upon his name ever again. And you could say that that's Old Testament, but I believe that Hebrews 6 is telling us a New Testament story of it. He's telling us very clearly, <coughs> it is impossible For anyone who has been a share of the Holy Spirit, the Metekos, who has been led to repentance, they've been restored to repentance. They've been brought into the faith through repentance and through humility and through faith. They've been brought into this and the Spirit of God has filled them and become one with them. They've tasted the powers of the age to come. They've shared in the goodness of the Word of God. But then they chose to apostatize from the faith. It's impossible to restore them again to repentance. Because Christ would have to come again and die. 
It's similar to Moses in, in Numbers, um, I think it's chapter 20, somewhere in that room. Chapter 20, <clears throat> I think even in Exodus, it's the same story. That you see that Moses struck a rock twice, <clears throat> and as a result, he wasn't allowed to go into the promised land. You know, it's interesting. Our sin struck Christ once, and he paid that price. He took it. He won't do it again. He will not come again. And die for your sins. Because Hebrews 9 says that he came once to die for the sins of many. And the next time he comes, he's coming for judgment. He will not come and die on that cross again. Because this is such a serious passage. And again, I'm well aware of the passages in John that I think a lot of people misinterpret. I'm well aware of the passages in 1 John 2, 3, 4, and 5. <clears throat> well aware of those passages and I think they're ones that people misinterpret and, t- and strip it of its context and not only that it becomes contradictory to much of their theology and what they're stating and instead they ignore passages like this this is written just as much as any other passage you want to understand <clears throat> I'll give you one analogy the one who it talks about is born of God does not make a practice of sinning since God's um, spirit abides in him God's seed is in him he cannot keep on sinning I don't believe that that's talking about a Christian who 20 years down the road falls into a pattern of sin. I believe that's talking about a person who was an unbeliever who had a practice of sinning. And then they said that they got born again, that they found Christ, they found salvation. If that person kept on in that same sin, they didn't meet Jesus. Plain and simple. Because now they have the spirit in them that will convict them of that sin and there will be a semblance of change in their life. But in no way does 1 John 3 state that a person who's been showing the fruit of Christ, and I've got examples. There are people that I know that for years they followed Christ. One of the more recent ones is a guy named Joshua Harris who for 20 years was a pastor. It might have even been 30 years. I think it was 20. <clears throat> was a pastor, served faithfully, wrote books, did all kinds of stuff, was a front runner for many things when it came to dating, when it came to all the other stuff. He had some of the guys that I hold in high esteem like Eric Liddy and Francis Chan. He had them as friends. They never saw through it because the guy was showing fruit. And for 20 years, and recently, in the last couple of years, he apostatized. A guy named Charles Templeton, a big uh, friend of Billy Graham. You can go read his story. Same thing. First John 3 is not referencing a person who 20 years down the road chooses to apostatize from the faith as saying, well, I guess they never really were born of God. It's talking about the person who is born of God who once they were a sinner and they practiced that sin, if they chose to not refrain from that sin and walked forward in it after saying they were born of God and they continued in that same sin, they didn't really meet deity. They didn't come to know God. It's that simple. So that's some of the apologetics that goes into understanding it. And all I can say is keep the context of the book whenever you're trying to understand the context of the truth. But this passage must fit in whatever your doctrine is. And right now, the way that I see it, many people, it doesn't. This is a passage that is very clear. And it's a warning that is given to believers. He doesn't say, you weren't really saved, guys. The author doesn't do that. 
He's even telling us, saying, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ. Let us go on to maturity. We need to make sure we're constantly growing in the faith, all of us, because this is a warning not just for you, it's for me too. That's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 9, 27. When he says, I exercise self-control and I discipline my body. I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself would be disqualified. Paul knew what it meant. The author of Hebrews knows what this means and he knows it's a legitimate thing. Listen to what he says in verse 7. I'm going to keep going on this one. We might not finish all of chapter 7, but we're going to try because it's, it goes hand in hand. Um, <clears throat> and we really need to try to keep it in. So I'm going to keep going and not just camping out on 4 through 6. He says, For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it, that same land that drunk the rain, that consumed that, that moisture that came from heaven is a semblance of the Spirit of God. Remember what he says, have shared in the Holy Spirit? The Spirit is oftentimes referenced as water or as rain. That's why he talks about so many oftentimes with washing with the Spirit of God. Baptism of the Spirit. It descends on high. It's that descender like when you crossed over the Jordan they came into the promised land. The Jordan literally means the descender. They crossed over this promised land or crossed over the Jordan. They were washed through that and came over to the other side. That's what it talks about. Jesus will baptize us with the Holy Spirit. He says that same land that drank that spirit, that took the things of heaven internally, it consumed them, it became one with them. That same land, if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to being cursed. And its end is to be burned. This is its, its end is to be burned, to be gathered up and thrown into the fire. If that land does not produce what is needed, if it produces thorns and thistles, just like the parable of the sower, where it says that seed, it actually began to grow. But it grew up with thorns and thistles and never purged it fully from its life as it was continuing to let the things of heaven grow in it. It grew up with the thorns and the thistles and it crowded out, it choked it, and it proved unfruitful. Its fruit, as Luke says, did not mature. Are y'all catching what he's talking about here? Like that's, that's literally the terminology that's used there in Luke is that he says it doesn't mature. The fruit was there. It showed fruit on the vine. It was actually there and it was, it was, uh, you know, if it's an apple, it's this green piece of apple that's showing there, but it never ripened. It never matured the way it was supposed to. It didn't produce what was useful. And he says, it's near to being cursed, meaning that it's coming. Its end is near. It's coming. And its end is to be burned. Now you, you this might go against everything you've ever thought. <clears throat> I'm just going to challenge you. <laughs> Look at the text. Look at what this text is stating. And you might be saying, well, do I just keep, keep reading 9 through 12? Keep reading. Okay, well, let's keep reading. Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. What's the author stating there? I've heard many people say, well, the, 
that verse just shows all this was hypothetical. Do you really think that God just deals in hypothetical what ifs and he throws these warnings around in here, but he doesn't actually intend to do it? Do we really think that that's who God is? God is absolute and he is black and white. He is not somebody who just throws around um, meaningless and, and um, what's the word I'm looking for? Inconsequential warnings to where he says, ah, I'm just kind of kidding with you. I wouldn't actually do that. that that's, that's been one of the arguments I've heard of this is that it's just a theoretical, but it actually wouldn't happen. That's absurd. Nothing in this suggests that it wouldn't actually happen. Nothing in this suggests that God is just playing around. This is a warning that the author has given us. So what is he saying in verse 9? He's saying, look, we don't think you've gotten to this place yet. That's all he's stating. You're infantile. You're a baby. And here's the warning of what's going to happen if you continue down this course. But we don't think that you've gotten there yet. We think that you still have salvation. Because you're not like Cain, a wandering star who has no point and purpose in life. We see there's still some semblance of the Spirit working in your life. There's still something of God in your life. We feel sure of better things. Things that belong to salvation. You haven't reached this point yet. But you better repent and you better change. Or else you might. That's what he's stating. He goes on in verse 10. For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. He says there's still some semblance of Christianity among you. You're still doing some good things. And God's not unjust so as to overlook those things that you've done for his name. But in no way does that take away the warning of what he stated. He says, and we desire each one of you. To show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end. So that, he says, I want you to continue in those little things you're doing and continue to progress in them. Stop being stagnant. Take my exhortation and my warning to heart and begin doing what he's called you to do. Stop being lukewarm. Do all these things until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. What did he just say? He said, I want you to keep going and I want you to then progress and mature. Stop being somebody who's just on milk and being content with it. You better start getting your Bible open and you better start studying to know what you believe. You better be prepared to make a defense for the hope that is in you at any point. So that if any time, in any way, somebody asks you for that hope, you can defend it. Or if somebody comes and they're coming against what truth states, you can contend against that. As Jude talks about in verse 3 of chapter 1. You better know the faith that you say you cling to. They said, I don't want you to be sluggish. You better start striving for it. You better start doing it. Because it is through faith and not just faith alone. Did you catch that? He doesn't say it's only through faith that you inherit the promises. It's faith and endurance. It's the, the Greek word, hupomene, is the Greek word there for patience. And it's endurance and steadfastness. It's being who you're supposed to be and a continuance in that. You look at Matthew 10, 22, it says the one who endures to the end will be saved. You look at Hebrews 10, 36, you have need of endurance so that after you have done the will of God, you will receive what is promised. 
Notice he doesn't say you're going to receive what's promised because at one time you believed on him. No, 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 no. That's what gets you into the promise. But you have to endure to the end in that faith to get the promise in the end. This, this is literally what the word teaches. How people miss this, I don't know. I used to miss it, but it was back when I didn't study. But at one point I came to God and I said, God, I don't care what I've been taught. I don't care what I think I know. I want to get in your word and I want you to teach me directly from the spirit because you said you would. And I consumed hours upon hours in a day for years. And it took me five years to come to a point where I believed that a person could choose to walk away from their salvation. Our salvation is secured in Christ. Nothing is going to pluck me from God's hand. But I see time and time and time and time and time and time and time again with warnings galore that say that you can choose to walk away. Nothing is going to take you from his hand that is external. But you can pry his hand open because he's not going to hold you against your will. Or, yeah, he's not going to hold you against your own will because it doesn't prove love. And I'm just going to say, as this said, if you choose to apostatize from the faith, You can't get back in. It's impossible. He says it's through faith and patience you inherit the promises. This is, um, oh, I'm sorry, it wasn't the Greek word hupomone, it was the Greek word makapothemia. It's endurance, fortitude, constancy, and perseverance. It's not losing heart, it's a continuance in that faith to inherit the promises. He says, For when God made a promise to Abraham, now I want you to listen. To what he's talking about, because God is absolutely faithful to uphold every promise he has made to us in Christ. He is faithful to uphold every single promise. He will do his part. But the thing about a testament, as he says, the New Testament, is the Greek word diatheke. And what it means is a contract. It's the new covenant or diatheke. It's the new diatheke, the new contract in the blood of Christ, where he says, you have better and and you have sure and better promises in Christ through the blood of Christ than what they had of old. But it's still a contract. And God will uphold his end. You must uphold yours. And that is simply to remain in Christ until the end. And whatever works you supplement to that faith, which is what brings you into Christ, right? By grace through faith, you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I could go into the Greek definition for beliefs of pistio. I could go into the Greek definition of faith, which is um, pistis. And I could show you that it is an ongoing thing that he says, whoever believes on me has eternal life. It's not just a concept of, oh, you believed on him when you were seven. So you have this promise throughout all time that can't ever be taken away from you. No, it's the one who continues to believe. It's a present tense verb, which means that you are continually believing in him to the end. And the one who does that has eternal life. If you claim him as Lord and believe on him until the end, you keep your position in Christ, name written in the book of life, which is essentially Jesus Christ, you will be saved. And the works that you do will either strengthen your faith or they will weaken your faith. 
Those works are not going to get you in and those works are not going to take you out. Those works simply strengthen or weaken that which saves you. And that is by grace through faith. I don't expect everybody to wrap their mind around this right now. But what I do expect is people to love truth enough to study it out to make sure that everything that you believe is congruent with everything that is written. He goes on in verse 13, For when God made a promise to Abraham, since he had no one greater by whom to, to swear, he swore by himself, saying, Surely I will bless you and multiply you. And thus Abraham, having patiently waited, obtained the promise. Did you see the correlation? Thus Abraham, having patiently waited. Did he mess up along the way? Sure. <laughs> Did he really set the course of this world on a bad um, trajectory with um, bringing about Ishmael? In the way that him and Sarah did? Absolutely. But he still waited for the promise. God's not expecting us never to mess up along the way. What he is expecting us is to maintain faith with endurance till the end to get the promise. He says, For people swear by something greater than themselves, and in all their disputes and oath is final for confirmation. So when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. So that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, notice the conjunction there, we, we who have fled for refuge might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. We have this as a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul, a hope that enters into the inner place behind the curtain where Jesus has gone as a forerunner on our behalf, having become a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. He essentially is, is saying this. Take this warning to heart. Understand it is a valid warning. It is a sincere warning. Just as Acts 13.43 says that we must continue in the grace of God. Just as he talks about in Romans 11.22, and I'll just turn there real quick, because he's talking to Gentile Christians. And he says, look, the Jews were cut off. They were forsaken. I was even just talking about this today, and that the Jews are... Um, I don't believe the Jews to be God's people any longer. I heard a sermon even just this morning that talked about it where you have the differences between covenant theology and dispensation um, theology. And the dispensation would say that the Jews are kind of like the starting quarterback and they've just been benched. For a time, the Gentiles kind of got to, to play their role and do their thing, but they're still the starting quarterback. They've just been benched. I don't see that. I see that the Jews have been cut off. Cut off is not benched. Cut off is traded. Cut off is let go. You've been cut from the team. You're not on the team any longer. Doesn't mean you can't come back on the team through Jesus Christ. Because remember, these Jews are rejecting Jesus. And every sin can be forgiven. Right? Before and prior to coming to Christ, every sin can be forgiven. And that includes the rejection of Jesus Christ. If a Jew would choose to come back and say... I believe in Jesus Christ as Lord, the Messiah, the Christ. God says, okay, I'll put you back on the team. But as of right now, the Jews are not on the team. Luke 13 says that they've been forsaken. Because until they believe that he is the Christ, they will never be given entrance into the kingdom of heaven again. This is what he says. 
in Romans 11, talking to Gentile Christians about how the Jews were cut off and the Gentiles have now been grafted in. He says, starting in verse 20, he says, That is true. They were broken off, meaning the Jews, because of their unbelief in Christ. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear. Why would we need to fear? Don't become proud, but fear. Well, that doesn't make any sense. Why would, I, why would I need to fear? I've been grafted into Christ. Do not become proud and haughty over the Jews as if you think that you're better than them. But instead, you need to fear. That doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. Well, let's keep reading. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Remember, he's writing to Gentile Christians. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity towards those who have fallen. But God's kindness to you, provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. Remember, he's writing to Gentile Christians. He says, you need to continue in his kindness. You need to continue in this covenant. The kindness that he showed to us through Jesus Christ. The access point unto the salvation. The source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, as Hebrews 5 says. You need to continue in that, or you too will be ekopto, cut off as from a tree. Exactly as the Jews were. And that's what Hebrews 6 is stating. Is this warning of being cut off is a legitimate warning. And he says, I'm not saying you've reached that yet. I, I am hoping that you have not. That's what he talks about, Pietro, the I feel sure of better things. I am hoping, I have, I have strong encouragement to believe that you haven't reached this yet. But understand my warning is sincere and it is valid and it will happen to you if you do not change the course of your life and start progressing and maturing in the faith as you ought. And I want you to know something. That God is faithful. That God is absolutely faithful to uphold his end. And we have a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. To know that as we progress in this, no matter how challenging things get, no matter how hard things get, no matter what it might cost us, that God is faithful to uphold his end of the bargain. And you can have that as an anchor of your soul. And you can stake that claim down to the faithfulness of God. That though you might stumble as you're trying to walk this thing out, though you might have some scraped knees as you journey on this path, God will uphold you. He will absolutely uphold you. And through your faith and your endurance or your patience, your steadfastness, your fortitude, your resolute um, demeanor in it, your endurance, you will inherit the promises that God has given to us in Christ. Now I know that this chapter is a tough one to digest. It's, it should be a heavy one. And it should be one that we take extremely seriously. And, and I know for me, growing up in the South, in the Bible Belt, this is not the common teaching. But as I talked about in chapter 2, I'm not into what's traditional and orthodox. I'm into what does the Word of God actually state? What is truth? And I don't really ever see that tradition and what is orthodox will ever win out over truth. I've studied for years and years and years with countless amount of hours put in just on this topic. And like I said, I was studying anywhere between five to seven hours a day 
I was probably getting three or four hours of sleep a night and I did that for about a year or two. I read every day. And a lot of my reading had a lot to do with this topic because I grew up believing once saved, always saved. I grew up believing that, that doctrine. And even with as much as I studied, even as much as I went through it, it took me a long time, about five years, to finally come to grips with what the truth is. And that is that apostasy is real. And it's a warning that we as the church need to be giving to the church. We need to be exhorting people to continue on steadfastly in the faith, knowing that it is not our um, sins or our good deeds that are going to prove us worthy of the kingdom of heaven. It is our position in Christ. That is what is going to be tested on that last day when we stand before him. He's going to say, look, you're going to give an account for everything you've done in the body, whether good or evil, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10. We've talked about that one at length in the last two chapters, or the last three chapters. It is going to be whether or not your name is written in the book of life. That's it. And your obedience and your disobedience is simply is going to strengthen that which keeps you in Christ, and that is your faith. You disobey, your faith will weaken. If you obey, it will strengthen. But the main thing I want us to understand is though it would be a difficult thing, and though, yes, again, I don't have time to get into all the apologetics like going into 2 Timothy chapter 2 or 1 John chapter 2, talking about they, they would have remained with us. Just understand, that's the spirit of the Antichrist. That, that's not referencing a genuine believer. That is the spirit of the Antichrist that was infiltrated in the church so as to try to destroy the church. It has nothing to do with somebody who de- deceptively thought they were really a, a, believed, uh, a believer. That has everything to do in the context of the passage of the Antichrist and the spirit of the Antichrist that is trying to infiltrate the church so as to deceive and destroy the church. Much like the Pharisees sent spies to go out to go test Jesus and pretended to be sincere. It has not anything to do with whether a person was actually saved or not. It has everything to do with the spirit of the Antichrist. So I could get into all the apologetics and all these classic verses. And in fact, I think you could even go onto our website at hisgrove.com and you could scroll through all of our previous sermons and you're going to find an apologetics course that I did in which I talked about this very thing. Um, as I'm kind of closing this out, if I've got service down here, I'm going to see if I can even find it for you and suggest it, and maybe I can put it on. Um, uh, it, I don't have any service. I'll try to put it on. If I remember, whenever I do the summary of this one, I'll try to put a link to it on there. You guys can go listen to it. But I go through in, in kind of a, you know, an inclusive fashion of everybody who is with. They each had a part to, well, let's get into You'll study it. Um, the apologetics of many of the classic verses that are used to say that once saved, always saved is the actual doctrine of truth. I'm here to tell you, Romans 6 is, cl- is clear, if we're willing to receive it. I am, but are you? Apostasy is real, and there is no coming back from it. I think the warning in Hebrews 12 towards the end about Esau when he sold his birthright as being part of that firstborn, the blessing that God gave to the firstborn, the blessing that God had when it says that in Romans 8, Jesus was going to be the firstborn among many brothers. We get into that firstborn privilege and blessing because of Christ. He is the firstborn. And we get that. But Esau served as an example of those who would choose to sell their birthright 
in the blessing of heaven for a single meal of earth. And even afterwards, when he sought repentance, he found none. When he wanted to get that blessing back, he couldn't get it. Even though he sought it with tears. Apostasy is real. And it is a very, very real danger to the church. And we need to start proclaiming that once again. And so hopefully this was something that gave you a lot to chew on. I'd love to hear questions. I'd love to hear thoughts and comments. I'd love to, to you know, dialogue a little bit more with you guys on some of these things. Um, but again, I'll do it in humility. And I expect humility. And genuine questions. If you really want to get in truth, I'm not just talking about defending your opinion. I'm talking about studying truth. I would love to hear from you and, and uh, hear your comments on this one. And so, we will continue in chapter 7 and uh, pick back up on this journey of going through chapter Hebrew or uh, the book of Hebrews. And we are roughly right about halfway through now. So, um, it's been really, really edifying for me and hopefully it has been for you as well. Y'all be blessed.